Amen. Well, thank you to our worship team, and I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. If you're visiting with us, we're making our way through the book of Acts, and we are getting close to the end. In fact, from, uh, from this stretch forward, almost every sermon is going to be covering like a full chapter, because we're, we're into the narrative at the end of the book, and, and things really, things are moving along quickly. And today, I confess, looking at this text ahead of time, I, I really wasn't sure I mentioned that I, I try to forecast ahead and I'll put a little title in, the, in for the sermon because it's like, okay, this is the direction we're going. As I looked at this passage, I wasn't entirely sure what the heart of this passage was and it wasn't until really diving in and studying that it, it jumped out at me, which is exciting as a preacher because my prayer is that the same thing will happen for you as we work through this story, that you'll see the, there's a beautiful heart behind this story. But some background. You're going to need to do just a little bit of homework to understand what's in front of us here. So over the last few weeks, we've been following Paul as he's done uh, what you might call a farewell tour through the churches in Macedonia and Achaia and the region of Asia. He's been going around. He's been saying his final farewells and he's been giving them parting instructions. You think about his instructions to the elders in Ephesus, telling them all the last minute stuff that he wants to make sure they know because he doesn't think he's going to see them again. But he's also been collecting an offering. And so, for example, when he wrote to the Romans, he wrote this letter during his farewell tour, he wrote and said, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, and listen to what he's doing, bringing aid to the saints. So while he's doing his parting tour, his farewell tour, he's also collecting an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And it's important that you understand why that's important. So why would Paul be collecting this offering for the church in Jerusalem? Well, it's because Jewish Christians and non-Jewish or Gentile Christians had a really hard time getting along in these early days. Their their relationship was tenuous at best. Uh, There was a lot of friction. And and that was because historically there had been a a great divide even theologically between the two camps. So if you had grown up a a young Jewish boy or a young Jewish girl, you had been taught that the Gentiles are unclean. That the Gentiles are not descendants of Abraham, therefore they are not the children of the promise and so we're, we're distinct from them, we're set apart from them. But then along comes Jesus and he says, yes, but, says you're missing a piece. Jesus taught us that the plan from the very beginning was always that the Gentiles would be included in this family. And we see that in the very first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, God says to Abraham, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. So that was the plan from the very beginning. And now Paul takes that promise and he lands it on Jesus. In Galatians 3, he explains Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. So Jesus comes along and he says, I am the descendant. I am the child of promise. I'm the one that you were waiting for. And through me, all the nations will be blessed. So all of the promises of blessing and hope and a future all the promises of resurrection and eternal life, all the promises land on and find their fulfillment in Jesus, the true offspring of Abraham. Therefore, if you want to receive God's blessing, it doesn't matter who your parents are or what your nationality is. 
It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile or if you're here today. It doesn't matter if you've got a really messy past or a really tidy past. What matters is whether or not you are in right relationship with Jesus Christ. That's, that's how the blessing comes to you, through him. Now, this might not seem like a big deal today, this Jew and Gentile distinction. Maybe that doesn't seem like a big thing to you, but this was massive in the days of the early church. And it was a particularly hard pill to swallow for those Jewish followers of Jesus who had previously been devout, law-observing, Gentile-avoiding Jews. So Paul is trying to overcome that massive separation in the church. And that's what the Jerusalem offering is all about. He goes to these Gentile churches and he says, would you give of yourself? Would you give sacrificially? Would you give an offering so that we can help the poor Christians in Jerusalem, those Jewish Christians? And as we send our love to them, maybe they will just let their guard down and the two can become one. And not only did they bring an offering, we saw a few weeks ago that they actually brought people on this 800-mile journey representatives from each of these churches to express their love. So that's what Paul's up to. So today as we read our passage, you need to have that in your mind. Paul's coming in with his group of Gentile Christians and the offering to Jerusalem to make for peace. Look with me now to Acts 21, 15 to 36, and hear God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Again, beginning in verse 15. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come So do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice that the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, 
word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I mentioned, well, first of all, this is not what Paul and his companions were hoping for when they entered into Jerusalem with this gift to make for peace. And as we look at this story, I would argue right at the heart of it, there's such a a powerful, beautiful lesson. But in my study, I felt like it's probably going to be hard for us to see the heart of this story until we've waded through some of the details. Because there are some unfamiliar pieces here that we need to understand before we can get to the heart. So this morning, that's our approach. We're going to we're going to understand the details of the story and then we're going, to, we're going to get to the heart. So first of all, the first detail that we need to understand if we're going to see what we need to see is the problem. So when Paul and his companions entered Jerusalem, they were greeted warmly by James and the elders in Jerusalem and they shared this report about what God was doing with the Gentiles and everybody was so thrilled. But very quickly in that meeting, there was a turn. James had to break some bad news to Paul, and we see it in verses 20 to 21. James explains, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So these are believers now, he's saying. Jewish believers, thousands of them. You see that? They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you. That you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So essentially, James says, Paul, God is doing great things. Paul, thanks for the report about the great things God's doing there. God's also doing great things here. Thousands of new believers, Paul, among the Jews. It's incredible. But, Paul, I got to tell you, they hate you. And uh, you should hear the nasty things that they're saying about you, Paul. And we're going to deal with the substance of that rumor in just a moment. But before we do, can... I, I wanted to paint this picture of Paul walking in with this offering and with his, his brothers as this peace offering because I want you to hear this way you should. Paul just comes in, great cost to himself, brings this offering. I mean, he worked hard to, to cultivate what? To cultivate unity. Among, he was working hard to bring all these people together. Paul was, uh, according to historical accounts, I mean, we know that he was, he was beaten He was flogged, he was stoned, he went through shipwrecks. Paul, one historian describes how he was bow-legged, like he he couldn't walk very well. He would have been scars all over his body. We we think that he was pretty well blind. And this bow-legged, beaten down, nearly blind man is traveling hundreds of miles, church to church in the regions of these Gentiles to collect up this offering. And he's working so hard for what? to try and make peace, to try and show love to these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, to try and bring these two groups together. And so he comes into Jerusalem, and now he's got these representatives of each of the churches. He's got this tangible expression of love, and he comes into the city thinking, I've done it. Nobody thought I could do it, bow-legged Paul, but I've done it. Like, this is going to 
This is going to bind us together. He comes and he offers the gift. And you can imagine he's ready to, to just rest and worship and celebrate what God is doing and, and observe the unity that has been so hard fought for. And, and one of the very first things he hears is, boy, Paul, the people here hate you. The, the Christians here are gossiping about you, Paul. And I want to make sure that you don't miss that. That was one of the details that jumped out at me. These are believers in verse 20, it says, of those who have believed. So these are believers who are slandering Paul. This defamation is circling not outside in the community, but inside in the congregation. Paul knew what it was like to come face to face with the shortcomings of the church. He saw the good, but he also saw the bad and the ugly. And, you, and we meet Christians, and maybe you are one of those Christians, and People who say, I love Jesus, I do, but man, the church, man, the Christians, what a mess. I don't, I can't, I don't know what to do with them. Ah, but listen, Paul saw all of that too. He saw all the mess, all the ugliness, and we read, he loved them anyways. He loved them. Even though they whispered nasty things about him behind his back. Loved them. Even though they sinned against him, he loved them because that is the model that Jesus set for us to follow. Jesus laid down his life for the church, for you, for me, seeing the good, the bad, and the ugly, seeing our sin. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is what we believe. That's the heart of the heart of our faith. Paul saw that, and he loved these people who had sinned against him. A little later this morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And in part of our preparation for the Lord's Supper, I'm going to ask you whether or not you are extending forgiveness out to people, people who have wronged you, people who have sinned against you, whether you are extending forgiveness out to the extent that Jesus has given forgiveness to you. As we celebrate the way that his blood has washed away our sins, that while we were sinners, he died for us, are we extending that forgiveness out to others because that's what it means to be a grace-filled follower of Jesus. We're the people who lay down our grudges by God's grace. The people who lay down our need to have the last word in the argument. Part of being a Christian means looking honestly at the shortcomings and the sins of others and choosing to extend the same love and mercy to them that Jesus extended to us. And it's a miracle when we're able to do that. Evidence of the Spirit working in us. But that's the call. That's what we see here. But I want to, before we move on, I want to also just draw your attention to the substance of the rumor. What is it that they were gossiping about Paul? What were they saying? Look at verse 21. James reports, They've been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. And so, what we see here is that the people who are slandering Paul are misunderstanding and misrepresenting him. They are, they're getting the emphasis wrong. Because, you see, what did Paul teach? If you, if you put it in a nutshell, what Paul was essentially teaching when he went to the Gentiles was that you do not need to first become a Jew in order to come to Jesus. That was the essence of his teaching. He goes to the Gentiles and he says, you don't need to pass through all the religious rites. You don't need to be circumcised to come under this Mosaic covenant. You, you don't need to do that in order to get to Jesus. He tells them in Galatians, 
For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's how you come. By grace you've been saved through faith in Jesus. You come straight to Jesus, so you don't need to become a Jew to come to Jesus. That was the message. They misunderstood it, and they, they thought that actually Paul was reversing it and saying to these Jewish people living in Gentile regions, if you want to come to Jesus, you need to become a Gentile, and then you can come to him. So you need to renounce circumcision. You need to eat all the food that you didn't think you were supposed to eat. You need to just get rid of all your customs, and then you can come to Jesus. So essentially, they thought that he was erasing their culture. He thought it was like an anti-Jew message. And if you've read his letters, you know that's not what he was saying. In Romans 14, Colossians 2, he makes all of these, um, what's the word, concessions, saying, hey, if your conscience won't let you eat certain foods, then don't eat them. By all means. You don't, it's not like you need to pretend that that's not where you're coming from to come to Jesus. But they thought that's what he was saying. They thought he was forbidding any observance of any of that. And they were wrong. So it wasn't true. But that didn't matter. It was circulating amongst thousands and the damage had been done and it was a problem. But James and the elders in Jerusalem had a plan. That's the second detail of the story. So what's the plan, James? We see it in verses 23 to 24 where James says, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Now, this vow that they're referring to is almost certainly the Nazarite vow. And if you've been tracking with us, then you know that we saw this back in chapter 18 when Paul actually, he himself took on the Nazarite vow and shaved his head. You remember that episode? And so this was essentially, it was a way to express like a commitment and a need, a dependence to the Lord, saying, I'm going to forego these things and I'm going to, I'm going to earnestly seek your face that you would help me through the situation. At the end of the vow, you shave your head, you make the offering. And, and they said, we've got four guys who are going through that. This is a very a distinctly Jewish vow. And so if you, Paul, will go with them and pay for their offering, this distinctly Jewish vow and offering, then everybody around will see that and say, oh, Paul's not trying to erase our, the reality that we are Jewish. That's not what he's doing. And then that will circulate and everything will be solved. There will be unity in the church. They will love you. Maybe they'll apologize for the things they said, Paul. That's the plan. And, they, and of course, for Paul to do this, he also needed to, be, to go through a purification ritual. Uh, one commentator explains, coming from abroad, Paul would have had to regain ceremonial purity by a seven-day ritual of purification before he could be present at the absolution ceremony of the four Jewish Christians in the Jerusalem temple. Now, I want to just pause here and step aside. If you're reading through it, they also, they say, hey, here's what we said to the Gentiles, and they reiterate what was decided back in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem council. Um, so here, they're not, it's not as if they are renouncing what they said before. They're just saying, Paul, you could, you could do this thing. It wouldn't be sin. It wouldn't be wrong. It wouldn't obscure the gospel, and this would be helpful. If they had proposed a plan that did obscure the gospel, Paul wouldn't have done it. So if they had said, Paul, we want you to go to the temple and, and make a sin offering, Paul would have said no. Why? Because Jesus is the sin offering, right? And so for Paul to present now another sin offering would be to deny the gospel itself. So Paul would never do that. He would never obscure the gospel in order to make for peace. But this, 
paying for these four brothers for the Nazarite vow, it's expensive. And going through the purification ritual, that's, it's a bit of a nuisance. But it doesn't obscure the gospel, and so Paul went ahead with it in an attempt to bind these believers together who were spreading rumors about him. But here, here's an interesting detail. I want you to stop and really think about this for a moment. Would it have been wrong for Paul to have said, mm, no? He would have been justified, I would argue, if he had said no. Just think about it. Why is he the one who's being asked to make this gesture of peace? This likely almost blind, crippled man who has just traveled some 800 miles in order to bring a financial gift to these people as an olive branch, as an expression of peace, how, why is it that he's the one who has to now jump through another hoop? Wasn't that enough? These folks have been, Paul's over here laboring for the gospel, emptying himself in order to serve these folks. They're sitting in Jerusalem, gossiping, slandering him, and then Paul arrives, and now he's the one who has to do a bit more to try and bring it together? Wouldn't he have been justified if he said, hey, no, in fact, how many of us would have instinctively, immediately said, not a chance? Not a chance. How's this for a plan, James? How about you and the elders start exercising your leadership and, and exercise discipline over these people who are slandering us and gossiping about us? How, why don't we start there, James, before I pay for these offerings? Or, or if they're so offended, how about this? How would I go into the court of the Gentiles and I pull out my pulled pork sandwich and I show them the freedom that I have in Christ and then we'll show them what, what is really offensive in our freedom? Like, how about that? Isn't that what some of us would do? Oh, you're offended that I wore my hat in church? Well, next week I'm not wearing a shirt. Like, and we instinctively, because it's a self-righteous pride, like, nah, I'm right. Paul was right. He was right and he's having to go a step further as a concession to people who are in the wrong. And when we're right, that is the last thing that we want to do. To bend over backwards for people who are, they're in their sin. But Paul didn't do that. Fascinating. He went ahead with this plan because he was more committed to the unity of the church than he was to his own rights. More committed to the unity of the church than he was to being seen as right one of the prominent marks of his ministry, his willingness to lay down his rights for the sake of others. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 says, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I think uh, one commentator explains this well when he writes, A truly emancipated spirit, such as Paul's, is not in bondage to its own emancipation. Emancipation is another word for freedom. That quote is worth thinking about for a second. Paul was so free that he wasn't bound even to his freedom. Meaning Paul was free. He was free to say no to this plan. He didn't need to do that. Paul was free to say no to this purification ceremony. This ceremony expresses that that Paul needs to be cleansed now to go into this holy place. Paul was cleansed by the blood of Jesus and the holy place now is in us. The Holy Spirit dwells in each one of us. We're now the temple. He was, he was well within his gospel rights and free to say no. Paul was free to simply move on from this congregation that had slandered him. Certainly free from paying out of pocket for these men's vows. 
Paul was free. And yet he willingly laid it all down. And that, that is true freedom. That's true freedom. He was free even from his freedom to put his foot down. The Puritan Richard Sibbs says this. He issues a challenge. I'm just going to let us sit in it for a second. It would be a good contest amongst Christians. One, to labor to give no offense. The other, to labor to take none. I would argue particularly, I'm going to say for my generation, it seems, it almost feels like we're, we're swimming in, in waters right now where, where the game is to try and find offense. Right? The game is, how can I take this the wrong way? What, what did you not say that I can pin you for? Or, or how was your tone off? I can pin you for that. It's like almost a, a virtue. that I could be offended by anybody. Look at me. And, that, and that's just not the Christian way. It's not the Christian way. That's not the way of unity. So Paul submits himself. And I just want to ask a question. Christian, as you apply this to your workplace, as you apply this to your marriage, your family, maybe your friendships, maybe even to the congregation, how far are you willing to go to make for peace? How far are you willing to go in observance of, of 1 Corinthians 13? Love believes all things, hopes all things. Why, why is it that you then believe the wrong motives and assume bad things? Believe all things, hope all things. How far will you go to make for peace? How low will you humble yourself for the sake of others? How much forgiveness can you extend for the glory of God? So Paul submits himself to this plan out of love for these people. Even though they've wronged him, he goes a step further. And then because this story is real life and not a fairy tale, even as Paul is doing that, everything gets worse. And that brings us to the final detail we need to understand in the story, which is the pushback. So he's there and he's, he's going in to, make the, to pay for these vows. And some of the Jews from Asia, that would have been Ephesus. So you, you remember Ephesus? It, the gospel flipped that city upside down. And so these are not now the believing Jews. These aren't followers of Jesus. These are, these are Jews who are still immersed in Judaism from Ephesus. They see Paul and they say, oh, this is our chance to just put an end to this guy who flipped our city upside down with the gospel. So they see him and they cry out in verse 28, men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple. He's defied this holy, defiled this holy place. Now they're saying this because they saw him walking around with Trophimus earlier in the city and they wrongly assumed that, that he brought Trophimus with him into the places where Gentiles weren't allowed to go, which is not true. As one commentator notes, it's ironical that this should have been the charge against Paul at a time when he himself was undergoing purification so that he would not defile the temple. So Paul's bending over backwards to do everything right, and then they just say, oh, he's done it wrong. He's, he's brought Gentiles into the court, which is patently false, but once you shout it out in the public square, the accusation sticks. Nothing changes, right? So now it's out there, and now everybody believes it, and, and, and people spring into action. It's a very serious accusation. The separation from uh, the court of the Gentiles and then the inner court, the place where Gentiles aren't allowed to go, it was surrounded by these barriers, which each had a sign, and the sign said, no foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows. 
And so when they shout this out, this suggestion that Paul is sneaking Gentiles into this place where Gentiles aren't allowed to go, it was so offensive that the crowd immediately seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and slammed the door shut. The penalty for such a heinous offense was death, and that is exactly what they intended to inflict upon Paul. Because we read in verses 31 to 32, as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune, of the cohort, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Meaning, they had been beating Paul. These people who were trying to kill Paul were beating him to death. We're going to forget about that in the next week or two. Let me just try and plant a seed in your head right now. As we read these next stories about Paul standing up and addressing the crowd, about Paul being taken away on the horse and standing before Felix, remember he's just been beaten to within an inch of his life, right? People trying to kill this already beaten down man. The, the guards come and they rip the crowd, this crowd that's trying to murder Paul. They rip him off and they, they take him away. And next Sunday, we're going to consider Paul's arrest and Paul's address to the crowd. We're going to deal with those details. But, but for today, I just want to summarize what we've seen. Paul entered Jerusalem with a generous gift. A gift that was intentionally to bring unity. And he had bright hopes that it would do just that. And yet, as he arrived, he was assaulted with rumors. He was saddled with further obligations. And then he was pummeled by an angry mob. And so seeing that story, understanding those details, I think that prepares us now to turn to the heart of the story very quickly as we conclude. What's at the heart of this story? Well, here we see a a follower of Jesus who is not, not getting what he believes he deserves, entering Jerusalem with an expensive offering of peace and met instead with resentment and rumors. He's given everything of himself, but they demand more. In humility, He agrees to pay the price for restoration even though the sinners are the ones who should be paying the price. And he's met with more false accusations and he's rejected by the people he came to help and he is beaten and the crowd calls for his death and one wonders why would Paul subject himself to this? And we find Paul's answer in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's it. Why would Paul do this? Why would he subject himself to this and live through this? Because he's an imitator of Christ. He's a follower of Jesus. He's walking in his steps. And I would argue in this story, in fact, more than almost any other story, we can see Paul literally walking in the steps of his Savior. You know, it was about 22 years before this story that Jesus entered into Jerusalem Paul came in carrying his offering for peace. Jesus was the offering for peace. He walked through those same streets. And he was met with false accusations. He was met with angry mobs. He was mercilessly beaten. And he stumbled under the weight of his cross. And all the people that he came to save, remember Jesus looking out over Jerusalem, weeping over Jerusalem. Oh, that you would know the thing which makes for peace. And all these people that he came to save, they spat at him and they mocked him and they shouted out, crucify him, as they shouted to Paul, away with him. Paul understood the example. He understood the call. 
Paul had stood in this same city and held the coats as people hurled rocks at Stephen. And Stephen, in his devotion to Jesus, just received it and he surrendered his spirit. Paul understood what Jesus meant when Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that's what we see in this story. What is it to take up your cross? You know, sometimes we hear that, and, and maybe, like me, we, can, we hear that, but it almost feels like this hypothetical, theological category. You know, who of us here is going to be murdered for our faith? Unless something dramatic changes, that's probably not something we're going to experience in this country in our lifetime. So take up your cross, you know, be willing to die for Jesus. We, what does that even look like to do that, to live that out? Well, here we see in this story that sometimes what it looks like to take up your cross is to, is to willingly be hated by people that you're giving your, your life to save. To be slandered by people, even as you pour yourself out to help them. To be abandoned by people that you are earnestly committed to. Sometimes that's what it looks like to take up your cross. Again, to not need to get the final word in the argument. To not need everyone to see your righteousness in the situation. To not need that affirmation. To not need to always be right every time. To not need to assert your rights, even though you very well have them. That's the call. In 1 Peter 4, we read, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You see, this is what, what did you think he meant when he said take up your cross? Do not be surprised. And he goes on to say, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It was as Paul was preparing for this journey to Jerusalem, as he was doing his farewell tour, and people are saying, hey, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get arrested. It was as he was going through that process that he wrote to the Romans, and he said, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And we're like, yes! And he goes on to say, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And if I could paraphrase Paul, I might say, provided we take up our cross and follow him, that we may also join in his resurrection. Suffering now, glory forever. A cross today. Eternal life Tomorrow, slander, false accusations, not having the final word today. Vindication and glory. Tomorrow, the judge of all things will make it right. Down then up. That's the pattern of the Christian life. The pattern modeled by our Savior, empowered in us by his Spirit. And it's only when we see that pattern and accept Jesus' call to take up that cross and follow him through that pattern that we will be enabled to lay down our pride, lay down our freedoms, overlook offense, and labor on in weakness and rejoicing. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Paul understood this. 
Paul lived this, and then Paul wrote to us, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that this is what's next. And I pray that you would now, by your spirit, apply it to each and every one of our hearts in exactly the way that we need to receive it. Lord, I suspect that there are some here today who what they need more than anything else is just to understand grace. They've never been able to extend this to anyone because, Lord, they've never received it. I pray that you would open the eyes today, soften hearts, unstop the ears, that, that Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for our sin would be seen and savored, that, that maybe even right now in this moment, someone who has been laboring in their own strength and carrying the weight of their own sin would look to the cross and see the Son of God saying, cast my sin upon you and I will take it. God, I pray that today would be a day of forgiveness for sins and new life. God, I pray that you would work that. Lord, for many others, I'm sure that We've seen the grace of Christ, and yet, Lord, there's something in us that, that keeps us from being able to extend that grace to others. Lord, I pray that you would just soften our hearts, Lord, that you'd fill us afresh with your spirit, and enable us, Lord, to overlook offense, Lord, to why not rather be wronged, Lord, to extend the forgiveness that we ourselves have received. And Lord, as we come to the table in just a moment, I pray that you would take that lesson and you would just press it right into our hearts, Lord, that that it would be so ingrained in us, that we would be known as a merciful people. Lord, I pray for your help in all of this. I pray that right now your spirit would preach a better sermon than anything I could ever preach. Lord, minister to your church, minister to your people for your glory. And Lord, I thank you that whatever hardships are in store, whatever suffering we might be called to endure, whatever it looks like for each one of us to take up our cross and to follow you, Lord, there is glory on the other side because of what your son has purchased for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for conquering the grave. And whatever good is in us, it is not from us, it's from you. And so now we pray that you would just minister to us and through us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?